and welcome to Hacker Public Radio. My name is Neo Dragon, as I'm known in cyberspace as well as on the Linux Basics pod- podcast. My name, as I'm known in the other dimension we all call real life, is Matthew Stahl. To find out more about the Linux Basics podcast, you can go to www.linuxbasics.com. If you have any feedback for me, as this is my first contribution to HPR, you can reach me via email at linuxgeekster.stall, that's L-I-N-U-X-G-E-E-K-S-T-E-R dot S-T-A-H-L at gmail.com, or on Google Plus at Matthew Stahl, that's M-A-T-H-E-W-S-T-A-H-L. Yes, my name is spelled with one T. I had hoped that my first episode would be on how I got into Linux, but that will have to wait till next time. Today's episode is actually a recording I made of the presentation given at the Columbia Area Linux Users Group, or KLUG, meeting on March 14th, with the speaker's permission. If you live in Maryland and are thinking of attending the KLUG, just go to www.kluge.com. Klug.org. That's C-A-L-U-G dot O-R-G to find out more. I would also like to thank Alan Hastings, another member of my lug, for allowing me to, the use of his digital recorder to record the presentation. The speaker giving this presentation is none other than Jared Smith, the former Fedora project leader, and I don't think I need to explain what a Fedora is to this crowd. Unfortunately, he hasn't sent me a link for the slides he used, so if you do want to see them, simply send me an email and I will reply back with the link info as soon as I have it. So, without further ado, I give you Jared Smith. So I talked to Chuck and I asked Chuck to send around you know, the mailing list and whatnot and ask what people want me to talk on. And he came back and said, well, some people want you to talk on Fedora and Linux distributions and working with upstream and why that's important. And some people want you to talk about documentation and publican and docbook and that kind of stuff. So I prepared both presentations, and it's up to you guys to tell me which one you want me to present on. The first one is talking about Linux distributions, Fedora in particular, um, why working with upstream is, is, is the best way to work um, in a Linux distribution. Show of hands. Yes, show of hands. They're both good. Anybody? Technical documentation, docbook, XML. Any winners? One. Asterisk came in third. I could do an asterisk presentation too. I was going to ask you about asterisk, but we wrote the book. We did. So, how do we asterisk? Here a couple years ago, okay. which went over very, very well. And I'll come back into another, another presentation. That would be fantastic. So I will go. You were, feel free yep. to begin. I'm going to go get the door. Okay. Sounds great. So <coughs> let me get the right presentation up here. Well, excuse me. Sure. So, so before you begin, you asked if the presentation that you were going to do. I thought that's what you did. No, no. I, I had presented, I had, I had come up with basically two presentations that are ready to give. I can give some Astra stuff kind of impromptu if, if you want me to, but uh, what I really had presented for tonight, you know, ready to go was, was stuff on Fedora, 
and uh, stuff on, on technical documentation with DocBook. But I'll come back another night and do, do, a, do an asterisk presentation. I'm sure Chuck will be happy to sign me up for a April soap. April soap. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty soon you guys will have me moving up here. Putting Maryland license plates on my car and everything. Anyway, the, uh, this is a presentation I call Swimming Upstream, How Distributions Like Fedora, the one I'm going to focus on, help open source communities. So, now let's see if my clicker's working here. There we go. So, a little bit about myself. Uh, as you probably guessed by now, my name is Jared Smith. Um, I'm originally from Wyoming, and well, you love the 80 degree weather out here today, but this is what it looks like in Wyoming. Um, so, you know, um, I grew up um, just south of the Tetons in the western edge of Wyoming. Um, there's, I'll, I'll tell you why, because we have this joke in Wyoming that there's only three seasons in Wyoming. Last winter, this winter, and next winter. Every once in a while we get a gap in there of about two weeks, and that's called relatives. <laughs> uh, grew, grew up in a town of about 300 people. I would love to live there. There's no jobs there. So, so, I, so I'm out east. Um, <clears throat> those few days during the summer that, that it was warm, um, I would spend down at the river. And I would be swimming. I would be fishing. I would be floating. I would be playing in the water. Um, the rest of the year I was playing hockey on the, on the ice. But um, this is what I love to do in the summers. And I love the idea of a river. And I'm going to use the, the concept of a river as sort of an analogy as I go through my, my slide presentation tonight to talk about communities and open source software communities in particular. And we're going to talk about upstream and downstream and, and, and how that works. But I love rivers. And one of, the, one of the best things that ever happened to me when I was, when I was about 10 years old or so, um, I got to go fishing. I got, got to go up to the Columbia River. Um, do some salmon fishing. Got to go even get, go out and do some deep sea fishing as well, and that was that was like the best thing ever because I was used to catching you know little three four pound trout, but you get out and uh, catch a big salmon that that just that just changes your world. But I learned a little bit about salmon. What do you know about salmon? Tastes good. Tastes good. <laughs> what else do you know? Swim upstream. They swim upstream. That's what I was looking for. Why do they swim upstream? To get spawn. To spawn. People don't do stupid things to spawn in real life, do they? Yeah. yeah. Salmon do. <laughs> Why do they swim upstream? Is that easy? Nope. No. It's actually very difficult. Why do they, they swim back upstream back to spawn? Back to their birthplace. Is there a reason for that? No, I'm not a biologist. I don't pretend to have all the answers here. Spawn and safety. Spawn and safety? What's, why is it safer to spawn in the rivers? Their biggest predators are not. Their bigger, biggest predators are not there. Yep. I've also heard from biologists that there's something about the force that it takes to swim back upstream and, and find their birthplace that only the strongest survive that process, and that helps with making the future generation stronger as well. So I wanted to talk a little bit about swimming upstream as, you know, as, as, as open source developers or users of open source software why it's important for us to swim upstream. It's not always the easiest thing to do, and it takes some, takes some hard work, and some, there's some challenges along the way, but why that's important. So before I get onto that, though, I want to give you a little background about how I got to where I am today. I, I don't pretend to be anybody special. I'm just another Linux nerd down, that lives down the road. Um, so how I got here? Well, started off when I was in college, went to Utah State University, was studying computer engineering, um, and as part of that, you know, you have to have lots of computer science classes. And luckily, I, was, I had one computer science class in particular that was a Unix class. 
Um, Was they, that really the bomb? <laughs> this is actually a picture of the bomb from Bletchley Park. Um, I didn't actually work on that, no. <laughs> I'm not quite that old, but yes. Yes, that is a picture of the bomb. I have, I have this thing for that sort of thing. But, um, anyway, I had this Unix class in college. They taught me VI. They taught me Emacs. I figured out that there's something wrong with my hands, and I can't quite hit enough keys at the same time to use Emacs, so I'm a VI guy. <laughs> yeah, I'll admit it. There's a few of you out there, I know. Okay, time for another joke. I just have to throw this one out there. I, I, anybody really a uh, uh, diehard Emacs fan is going to be offended if I make fun of Emacs? Yeah, right. Okay. The, uh, so Emacs is this great operating system. I just wish it had a decent editor. <laughs> Ouch. So um, when, I, when I took this Unix class in college, it really got me hooked on kind of the Unix way of doing things and lots of small tools that you kind of pipe together and chain together to build bigger things. Um, I happened to get very lucky, and uh, my wife was working for a company, and, and I, I would come in on nights and weekends every once in a while just to help them fix a computer problem, you know, fix their networks, that sort of thing. And one day, the, the vice president just said, hey, why don't, why don't you start working here? You're fixing our stuff. You know, we might as well pay you for it. And so I got a great job. Had the chance to really dive into systems administration, um, networking, and stuff on the Linux side. Um, got to where I was managing about 6,500 Linux servers. Um, it was lots of fun. And then I took a little detour in my, in my career and got into voice over IP. Some of you t heard me talking about Asterisk earlier. Um, got really heavily into Asterisk. Got, uh, found that there was no documentation. Um, started uh, the Asterisk documentation project and then with two friends of mine from Toronto wrote the O'Reilly book on Asterisk and uh, had a lot of fun there. Ended up being a uh, training manager for Digium, the, kind of the corporate company behind Asterisk and, uh, and also their community relations manager for the law. And then, a couple of years ago, this company called Red Hat convinced me to be the Fedora project leader. And I don't know which was the better deal, whether it was me convincing them that I was the right guy for that job or them convincing me that I really wanted that job, but it worked out really well. And so how many people here know about Fedora? How many people use Fedora? Cool. So... Um, as you, as you probably know, Fedora is a Linux distribution, but it's not just about the bits and the bytes that we ship on the CD every six months. It's really about the community that we have that happens to have this work product that we kick out every six months called the Fedora distribution. Um, and we have a rotating lead leadership uh, scheme in, in Fedora. So about every two years, more or less, we you know kick the old Fedora project leader out and Red Hat hires another one and, and, and the project moves on. Um, underneath that, we have the, uh, the Fedora board, um, half of which is appointed, half of which is elected by the community to kind of run the, the, the governance of the project. We have a technical steering committee um, called the Engineering, excuse me, the Engineering Steering Committee, or FESCO, that handles kind of the day-to-day -day technical decisions within the, the, the distribution. We have an ambassador steering committee that handles the day-to-day -day business of events and people and, and marketing and, the, and those sorts of things. And, and that works out really well. So that's where I've been for the past two years, up until about a month ago. A month ago, I passed on the baton to, to a gal by the name of Robin Bergeron, who's the next Fedora project leader. And I'm just winding down, you know, ramping, you know, ramping her up into her job, and then I'm off to something else. So let's talk a little bit about rivers. Since I, since I said I was going to use this analogy of rivers here for a minute, where do rivers start? Mouse springs. A spring? In the mountain somewhere, higher elevations typically, right? Snow melts. Snow melt. Swamps. Swamps. Waterways. How do how how do how do rivers start? Do they start as a big wide thing here? 
Not usually, right? They usually start as a, as a little trickle, a little small start. Then what happens is they flow downstream. They tend to get, yeah. Picks, picks up other streams, people get together, they converge, they have tributaries. By the time the river gets out to the ocean, typically it's a little bit bigger, right? So, so the same thing happens with software. Typically, when you go out and set out and write a piece of software, you don't get 100 engineers in a room and say, okay, let's sit down and write this. Um, okay, maybe there are some companies. Maybe in the DC, er, greater DC area, that might happen more often than not. But <laughs> I, 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 I always like the the line that you know, throwing throwing more programmers at a project is like saying, well, if we put nine women, if we get nine women pregnant all at the same time, that means they can have a baby in, in each month, right? It doesn't quite work that way sometimes. So, anyway, um, typically especially with open source software projects. They happen with one, one person or two people getting together and say, hey, this is an idea. Let me start hacking on this a little bit. Oh, this is cool. And then somebody else comes along and says, hey, that's kind of cool. Let me add some, some code here. Let me help out here. Heaven forbid, let me write some documentation over here. You know. And then more people climb on and more people start using it and say, hey, this is great, but I need this extra functionality over here. And it, and it goes getting bigger and bigger over time, just, just like this river. Now, I use the, the word open source communities, and I use that, that, that term pretty broadly. So let me ask the question, well, what is a community? Here's, here's some houses. There's some people that obviously live in those houses. Is that a community? Or is that just a neighborhood? Is it even a neighborhood? Is it just a collection of houses? Is there a difference? Well, there's a social relationship in a community. There's a social relationship in a community. So what, tell me a little bit about this, this social relationship. Well, they have some, some shared uh, interests or concerns. Shared interests, concerns, that's always important. Maybe maybe even some shared goals. Shared values. Shared values. Shared effort. Shared effort. And maybe even some shared responsibility. Anybody love their homeowners dudes? Did oh. I say that out loud? So, you know, I, I think the same thing happens in, 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 you know, in software communities. We talk about software communities, and I could go on a big, long rant about what is a community and what isn't a community, at least with my own rules. You know, a mailing list is not necessarily a community. A, a list of users of your software isn't necessarily a community. Just because you have a website or a forum doesn't necessarily mean that's a community. There has to be this social aspect to it where there's, there's, there's some shared goals and shared principles and power to actually affect change. And that's, I think those, those are important things in communities. Um, about, oh, it's probably been five or six years ago now, um, there was, a, there was a, a, a magazine editor that asked Linus Torvalds, how's the, how's the Linux community doing? What's the state of the Linux community? And Linus told him, you've got it wrong. There is no just Linux community. You can't point your finger at one thing over there and say, oh, that's the community over there. There's a bunch of people using Linux for their own selfish interests, but it's not really a community per se. That's a pretty good definition. I'm not sure if I agree with it 100%. The picture that I like to use to, to, to highlight communities is the idea of a table. And since we've got tables in here and people are sitting around, what happens when you have a table and people sit down and at the table? Food fights. Especially if there's food. <laughs> that is food fights. But what else happens? Start talking. People start talking. They share ideas. Oh, what are you working on? Oh, that's kind of interesting. Here's what I'm working on. I heard a bunch of that before I stood up and started yapping my trap here, right? And that, to me, is, is what community is about. It's bringing people together, having a common place where they can meet, share ideas, 
yes, there's going to be some arguments. Sometimes you're going to argue about the table itself and what color it should be. And why don't we take this wood and build a bike shed instead? And we're going to have some flame wars and those sorts of things. But that's what community is about, is bringing people together so they can sit down on a level playing field and, and, sh and share ideas, share thoughts, share concerns. Okay? So what happens with software? Communities go out, they build software. What happens to it? How do people get that software? Distributions. From a distribution, right? Typically, people don't just go out and compile every single program they use from source code, although there are people who do that. They're called Slackware users. They're called Slackware users. Gen <laughs> <Ginger> users. users. <laughs> yes. I call them very patient people. <laughs> but there's, a, there's an important role for distributions, right? So distribution typically takes the bits and bytes from a bunch of different software communities, puts them together, stamps it onto a CD or DVD, rolls that out every six months or every year or every three years, just depending on the distribution. Is a distribution more than just the bits and the bytes on the CD, though? Sure. I would argue that it is. Okay. Now, typically, if we're going to look at just the bits and the bytes for a minute here, typically those are arranged in some sort of packaging format, right? So in, in the world of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, Fedora, CentOS, you know, some of those derivatives, um, we have the, cop, the, the concept of an RPM package. BB and Ubuntu tend to use the dev packaging format. Uh, there's other packaging formats for other distributions out there as well. Is packaging important? Yes. It's very important. You can get, get into all kinds of trouble with and without package management. It's just yeah, a whole lot easier to get out of trouble if you're using good package management. Now, is it just a race then to see who has the most packages? I mean, packaging is important, and everybody wants their software packaged up in the distribution. Is that what a distribution is really about? Is just having all those packages available and ready for you? Well, is that a target audience or a, a particular function that the distribution is geared for? Right. That's exactly right. In fact, I would argue that having some integration between the packages, having the packages fit nicely together and actually build something that's cohesive as a whole <clears throat> is just as important or perhaps even more important than just having you know, the biggest raw count of, of, of packages out there. So you know, if, 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 if a package is an in individual Lego block, what we really want to build is not just a, a bucket full of blocks, but what we want to build is something out of those blocks, right? I love the analogy of Lego blocks. I'm a, I'm a big Lego nerd. I'm sorry to admit it publicly. And now, now somebody on the podcast is going to find that out about me. Um, when I first got married, my wife you know, saw that I had all these Legos. And she's like, oh, these are for when we have kids, right? And I just, oh, well. She never thought she was going to have to say, okay, Jared, put away the Legos. Do your homework. Yeah. So um, I love the, But I love this, this, this concept of, of Lego blocks. You can take a few and, and, and put them together. So if I were to ask you, if I were to hand you a, a bucket of Lego building blocks and said, what would you build if I, if I handed you a, a bucket of blocks right now? Uh, a house. A house. What would you build? Something to build. A building? What would you build? A ramp, maybe. A ramp. What would you build? I don't know. How about over here? A house. House. Nobody's going to build a ship or a spaceship or a rocket or a bridge. Hmm. 
I was gonna say probably some vehicle from the Star Wars genre. Yeah, that's, yeah I, I knew there was a space. Uh, a guy that liked to build space spaceships with Legos out there somewhere. I'm not the only one. Good. Phew. So, the next concept, going back to this this analogy of a river again for the distribution, is the is the concept of upstream and downstream. So let's talk about these concepts for a minute here. What does upstream mean when we're talking about you know, computer, computer software, open source software, a little more specifically? What's the ultimate upstream? The source. That's the source of the code, right? Whoever's writing it or the group of people or the team or the project that's actually writing the software, right? Now the opposite is downstream. Who's the, who's the downstream? The users. I mean, the, 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 the distribution is downstream from upstream, but there's somebody further downstream from them, which is eventually the end user of the software. And so distributions tend to be somewhere along that continuum from upstream to downstream. And I, I want to illustrate this with, uh, with this next slide. It's going to work. There we go. So imagine that, that, you're, that, that these kayaks are actually paddling towards upstream. Okay? So upstream's off on the horizon up there somewhere. Um, we may have some Linux distributions that are kind of on the forefront out there looking, looking right up towards upstream and, 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 and trying to be the first to be up you know, close to that upstream software. You may have some other Linux distributions that kind of follow behind and see what those other distributions do um, and, and go from there. Just as one example, well, the one I'm most familiar with, obviously, is Fedora. Fedora has kind of four guiding principles that, that determine what we do in the, in, the, in the distribution. Freedom, friends, features, and first. And without going into all of those in a lot of detail, one of those is first. We like to take the newest software, the, the cutting edge software, sometimes a little too much bleeding edge software, but well, that's another topic for another day. But we like to be on the, on the cutting edge of what's new with, with Linux software out there. And so we tend to push fairly aggressively towards upstream. When there's a new release of Firefox, or there's a new release of LibreOffice, or there's a new release of GNOME, or there's a new release of Thunderbird, you know, we're going to be one of the first distributions to package that up and have that, have that ready to go. That's something we pride ourselves on. <coughs> Continuing again with the same analogy here, let's say Red Hat Enterprise Linux. A little slower release pace, not always out there on the, on the cutting edge, right? Still a great, solid distribution, and if you need support, please pay, pay Red Hat money. They, they're a great company. Um, but they tend to follow what Fedora does and say, oh, yeah, that kayak went off this side a little bit. Maybe we should, when we come up the river here, we're going to steer a little to the other side. Well, hey, that worked really well. I'm going I'm to shoot through that same channel. There. Um, and so, you know, different distributions look at different places in the in that continuum again between upstream and downstream. Now, there's something about this, this picture here that I really, really like. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve a little bit of a geography lesson. So, so, so reach your minds back to when you were in elementary school. Anybody ever hear, hear about something called the Continental Divide? If you grew up in Wyoming, you know what it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious. People out on the East Coast sometimes look at me like, Continental Divide, I don't know anything about it. So I need somebody to explain what the Continental Divide is. Go ahead. Mississippi River? No. The drainage, it's the drainage area. It's the drainage area. So, so if you look at the Rocky Mountains as a good example, there's places in the Rocky Mountains where 
on one side of the mountain, things drain eventually down into the Mississippi River and out into the Gulf of Mexico and into the Atlantic Ocean. And on the other side of the mountain, it drains out to the, to the Pacific Ocean. Now, this, pic this picture here was actually taken in, in uh, two, two Oceans Creek. Actually, this one is in Pacific Creek. But this Pacific Creek splits off in Two Oceans Pass from, from Two Oceans Creek. And Two Oceans Creek, literally, the creek's going down like this, and it splits into two. Atlantic Creek and Pacific Creek. Let's, let's see if I can get my geography straight here. Atlantic Creek flows into the Yellowstone, which flows into the Missouri, which flows into the Mississippi, into the Gulf of Mexico, and out to the Atlantic Ocean. Pacific Creek flows into the Snake, which flows into the Columbia, which flows out to the Pacific Ocean. And so, literally, a river like this splits into, and, and, and some drops go, you know, this direction, some drops go thousands of miles this other direction. But I use that analogy, and, and I love this picture for that, because it really shows you the further you are upstream, the more control you have about what's really going to happen with those bits and bytes, what's going to happen with that software. You know, what is the end user experience going to look like? If you're a distribution, you may have this much control about what that is. If you're the upstream community, you probably have this much control. If you're the end user, it may be closer to this much control. So think about that as you're thinking about upstream and downstream. So next I want to talk a little bit about distributions, why distributions are important, and kind of you know, my vision for how I would like to see distributions work better with upstream communities. Now, I wish it was just as easy as this pair of you know, binoculars here on the screen. and just turn that little knob and make the vision a little bit clearer. But this is, this is the, the gospel according to Jared Smith. This is my own thoughts on on distribution. Why do people take the work and do the work in a distribution? Why do why are distributions important? First of all, I think that distributions give people a chance to contribute to open source and, and a way to take pride in, in what they do. Not everybody is cut out for starting a new software project or contributing code to an upstream project, but distributions give pe people a, a, a nice friendly place. They can report bugs, talk with other users of the same software, integrate different pieces of software together, make things work well together, do marketing and translation and documentation and, and those sorts of things. And people really do take pride in the works that they do. And oftentimes, I know we don't mention this uh, real often in, in open source you know, development communities, but people, you know, pride is one reason that we do what we do in, in open source development. It's not always about the money, it's not all about the, the, the fame, but people do take pride in, in what they do and, and, and that's an important part of it. Another thing that's important about uh, software distributions is that uh, that they're welcoming and they're inclusive. Kind of like this city of Ardmore, Oklahoma here, they say, welcome. We're trying to build an inclusive community. And I think distributions do a pretty good job of that, but maybe could do a little bit better job of, of being inclusive and not saying, hey, we're just for this little niche group over here, but we're welcoming the people from all different kinds of you know, backgrounds and, and, and experiences. Um, what's the point of a distribution after all? A distribution is there to give you the tools you need to do your job, right? If a distribution didn't give you the tools you needed to do your job, you probably wouldn't be using it, right? I mean, it's an operating system. An operating system is supposed to give you the tools you need and then stay out of your way so you can get it done. And so it's a collection of tools. Now, I may have different tools on my tool bench than what this picture here has, right? Or I may use a soldering iron a little bit differently or you know, that sort of thing. But the, but the point is that the... the, the the operating system is there to give you the tools you need to get the job done. And so 
I think sometimes distributions forget that, that fact. That that's really what they're there for, is to provide tools and then stay out of the way. Distributions also serve as a, a very important schoolhouse for helping people get up to speed, not just in individual tools, but kind of the, 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 the Linux mindset, the Unix way. Um, there's lots of different tools, different ways to plug them together. Um, it's not just one piece of software that solves all the world's problems. It's often unique combinations of little pieces of software. Oh, if I take this utility over here, and I combine it with this utility over here, and I take this database over here, and I put them all together, look at this cool thing that I can do. All right? Another really, really important aspect to uh, Linux distributions is, is the, the opportunity for cross-pollination. The idea that maybe we have some physicists over here, and maybe we have some and computer programmers over here, and maybe we have a guy who, you know, he just he's just tinkering around with computers a little bit in his basement in his spare time, but they can share ideas and, and share experiences and say, hey, I haven't looked at it from this perspective, but I ran into this problem. And somebody else can say, well, hey, I have a little different perspective on this. Maybe you should attack it from this direction. Um, that cross-pollination is where the really cool ideas come out of the uh, distribution, because you have different people, different experiences, different backgrounds, approaching problems in a different way. Oops, skip one. Um, obviously, Linux distributions have a lot of different mechanisms for communication. Mailing lists and forums and, and all that. And the, the reason I put this slide up here is, is maybe, perhaps, sometimes things are a little too, too compartmentalized in the communication. Oh, I have a question about such and such. Oh, yeah, you need to be on that mailing list or you need to be on that forum. And... And yeah, that's 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 important to a certain degree to make sure that that uh, you know that, that, that it's not just a mass flood with all kinds of different topics on, on one big mailing list. But at the same time, it can reduce the amount of cross pollination and the, the amount of you know there, there's a certain fatigue that sets in when people realize oh I've got to sign up for 32 different mailing lists just to try to find the answer. Another thing I think is very important with Linux distributions and. One thing I really pushed hard for in Fedora over the past couple of years is transparency. Um, people are watching everything you do. And uh, to try to make sure you have transparency, not only in you know, the software itself and it's properly licensed and everybody can see the source code and that sort of thing, but governance decisions. You know, Why was this decision made? When was the decision made? Who made that decision? Is that the right decision for the, you know, for the project? Making sure things like meeting logs and and those sorts of things are publicly available. It's a very, very important thing um, from my standpoint for, for Linux distribution. Um, you know, sometimes Linux distributions give people a chance to stand up on their soapbox and, uh, and preach a little bit. Sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes that's just like watching sausage being made. Um, there's, there's, there's the good sides and the bad sides to that, but the important thing is that people have a chance to express their opinions. Um, hopefully it's in a constructive manner and you know, we've, we've all been around the block a few times, I'm sure. We've seen some flame wars and we've seen some ugly things on, on mailing lists. But hopefully it's constructive more, more times than it's just watching sausage being made. Um, one of the things I always uh, stress to people is that everything we do is a work in progress, right? How many people have you know, the perfect version of a piece of software? doesn't have any known bugs, no, no known ar architectural limitations. It's perfect. Nobody's ever going to have to touch it again. <laughs> for any non-trivial program that it becomes difficult right and so there's going to be another version you're, you're going to have to change some things in the future you're going to have to change
policies and procedures in, in a distribution. You're going to have to, you know, break a few eggs from time to time to make an omelet. Um, we're never going to have it ha have things perfect. You know, Fedora 16 came out um, last fall, early November. Was it the perfect Linux distribution? Nope. Probably should say that publicly as the, as the former Fedora project leader. It wasn't perfect. It was pretty darn good. I was happy with it. But guess what? Fedora 17 is coming out in just a couple months from now, and it's going to be a heck of a lot better. Then Fedora 18 is going to come out later this fall, and guess what? It's going to be even better than that. It's still a work in progress. And I hope we never get to the point where it's where we're done or we're going to be bored, right? Now, the next uh, slide I want to show, I want to ask the question, who are our enemies? If you would have asked me 10 to 15 years ago, who's, who, who's the enemy of open source software? Or Linux in particular. Probably some large corporate entity. We'll try not to name too many names on a public <laughs> If you would have asked me maybe maybe three or four years ago, what's the what's the biggest enemy to say Fedora or to one of the other Linux distributions? SCO. <laughs> if you would have asked me, yeah, three days ago or a month ago. What's, what's the biggest enemy we have? What's the biggest problem we have? I would Patents. say... What's that? Patents. Patents? That's, that's maybe one thing. I would say that I have seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. I think the biggest problem we have in the Linux community and in the open source community is ourselves. The way we tear each other down, the way, the way we can't seem to communicate on a rational level with people who don't understand what we're talking about, Many times, the way we're, we we tend to be clickish, the, ten, the, the the way we tend to be focused on what we want to focus on and not frame things in a way that the rest of the world can see us for what we're trying to accomplish. I think that does more to to impede our growth than anything else. Last year, we experienced something we may never experience again in our lives. The states ran out of money, all but two, Alaska and North Dakota. This state decided to change the operating system. They were paying Microsoft too much money to run their programs every year. Mm -hmm. uh, who made the presentations to the states? Heavens no. They came up with, they're going to replace their operating system with something I have never heard of, something you would probably reject immediately because everybody was out doing their own thing and never realized this is a tremendous market. 48 states in the nation are going to change and with that is going to come state and local government because they don't have any money either. Right. They need a big freebie and who presented the did, distribution uh, did we pull this talk? Did we try oh, to pull together and work together to, 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 to accomplish that? We didn't, did it? Well, there was some political hack up there who obviously didn't know anything about anything made the decision. And that's and, and that's the world we live in. And to be, to be honest, I think too many times we put up these these artificial barriers where it's oh it's Fedora versus Ubuntu versus Gentoo, you know, or it's you know my way of doing things versus your way of doing things. To a large extent, though, it's been like that for a long time. It has. So what, what you're sort of saying is not so much you, you think we've 
we're beginning to get to a state where we're fighting with each other, but we've always been fighting with each other. You'd like to see it change. We've always been fighting with each other, but I think it's I, I think it's been more pronounced, at least in, in, in my view. I think it's I think at least from a distribution standpoint, I think I, I think it's been more pronounced over the past four or five years than it has you know, ten years previous to that. And you mean distribute between distributions, between distributions or within distributions? Both. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly, you know, between you know, between distributions, um, things things you know, as, as as hard as myself and some of the other you know, project leaders from some of the distributions have tried to get, hey, let's cooperate. Let's you know, if if we find a, a problem, let's talk amongst the distributions and say, hey, let's come to some sort of general consensus on the best way to solve this for the for the communities at large. Instead of oh, Fedora's going to do it one way and Debian's going to do it another way and OpenSUSE is going to do it a third way and. Now we've got four different ways to solve three problems. Fractured. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's fractured and splintered, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of wasted effort in trying to... In trying to yeah, people have been calling it wasted effort for a long time, though, you know? Yeah, they have. But yeah. it, certainly within distributions as well. I, I look at, you know, the, you know, my experiences in Fedora over the past five or six or seven years. Um, there's a lot of... Okay, maybe wasted effort is a... Is a, is a strong term, but there's been a lot of churn and a lot of discussion and a lot of long threads on mailing lists that at the end didn't accomplish anything, didn't move the ball further down the field. And then you have an oxymoron called unity. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go there. Ask me what I think about that later. <laughs> Did Fedora get any contracts from any states? Well, Fedora is does, doesn't... Doesn't do that sort of thing. It doesn't try to. It doesn't try to make any money. In fact, we in Fedora have no way of accepting money. We're good at spending Red Hat's money, but we have no way of, of actually taking money in. You know, if we wanted to sell T-shirts and make money, there, we'd have no physical way of, of, of taking in money. So, so no, we were not trying to get contracts from from the Fedora standpoint. I know some of the commercial um, Linux distributions work towards that. You know, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. You know, SUSE, You know, Ubuntu. I. I don't know. I, I, I spend very little time working on the government side of things. I know Red Hat has a division focused on public sector stuff. I could put you in contact with somebody there that might know that answer better. I don't know off the top of my head. I was surprised that Germany pays half the bill for Linux programming development. They know what they want. They tell you, and if you don't do it, you don't get any money. There's, there are certainly co- countries out there that are more forward-thinking with open source than, than we are in the United States. No comment? I don't know which one. Some, some of it is. Some of it's just open source stuff in general. Um. And you know, there's like I said, there's some countries that are very, very forward thinking when it comes to open source. Brazil, for example, I spent quite a bit of time in Latin America and spent some time in Brazil, and the Brazilian government has has figured out, hey, you know. We can get things done with open source, and we can we can you know hire people to, to, to write open source software. And over the long run, it saves us a whole lot of money. And uh, you know, there's other countries that have come along and, and, and put laws into place when they're when they're going out and and, and trying to procure software that look at open source first, and then if open source doesn't do the job, then go look at a commercial solution. So there's there's. Okay. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but. No one of the things that drives some of the contention is the new technology. I mean, for a while, you know, laptops came on the scene and all of a sudden you had Wi-Fi and there was all kinds of havoc being created by Wi-Fi drivers. Now we've got mobile. 
And that's a, a whole new platform. And, you know, unity is a response to how do we deal with mobile. It may not be a great response, but it is driven by the new underlying hardware that sure. uh, we're trying to build on top of. Sure. And, I'm not, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have different approaches and, and, and play a little bit of Darwinism and survival of the fittest when it comes to, to software. But there's, there's things that, that we argue about that aren't about new technology, and it's, it's really, you know, wars about, you know... This this has been this has been this way for ten years. Do we have to keep doing it this way, or, or can we can we try something? You know those those sorts of things. Yeah, well, but like I say, it's been like that for it's a been long it's been like that way for a long long time. And I don't I don't expect that everybody's just going to start you know hugging each other and singing kumbaya and the, 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 the world's a better place. But I think I think times there's times that we do kind of put up artificial barriers and but there are also times that uh, things come together. Like open desktop was a real serious attempt between the known folks and the KDE folks to try and come to some sort of a consensus on what is a desktop <laughs> and how can we interoperate with each other and allow applications to run pretty much on either one. Sure, sure. We can pick out both both you know things that, like that, that 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 we could count as successes and there's things out there that we could count as, as failures as well. It's it's but we need to be hopefully we're at least have the mindset that we're trying to work a little closer together, try to tear down the, the walls and the barriers a little bit to, to encourage distributions to, to, to communicate more with other distributions, people within a distribution to communicate more. And so have you seen uh, situations where uh, distributions have tried to cooperate with other distributions and it's either working or not working? Um, yes. Um, unfortunately, it's mostly not working. Um, I, did a, I did a presentation uh, a little over a year ago at FOSDEM in Europe, in Brussels, um, with the leader, the, the, the project leader from Debian and the project leader from, um, from OpenSUSE. And we talked about, you know, what can we do as distributions to, uh, to communicate better on issues. Um, we've had some limited success with that. Um, um, you know, I think, I, I think out of all the distributions that I can think of off the top of my head, I think OpenSUSE and, and Fedora tend to share a little bit more with each other, mostly because they're RPM-based and, and, and you know, com- common lineage in, in a few areas and that sort of thing. Um, in some regards, Fedora's gotten better at, at talking to, to the Ubuntu crowd and in some ways has gotten uh, worse at that over the past couple of years, just depending on um, which thing you know, you're talking about. Are you talking about graphics drivers? Are you talking about wireless drivers? Are you talking about desktop kind of things? Um, but there's, there, there's still not enough of it. There's a you know, free desktop has a distributions mailing list where distributions are supposed to be able to share um, concerns and ideas, and, and, and that's, that's kind of the venue that everybody points to. That, that's the place to have those discussions. Um, it's embarrassingly quiet on that mailing list. But, but Jerry, it isn't also the part of the problem that each of the distributions, so to speak, free mm-hmm. distributions, have a parent company that is a for-profit or at least a, have a commercial arm, and, and they, they want to make sure that uh, they can differentiate their distribution from competitors' dis- distribution. To a certain extent, from you know, I could, speaking for, for from you know the Fedora side, and, and Red Hat is kind of the, the corporate sponsor of the Fedora project. Um, I can I cannot stand up here and honestly say, is the two years I was the Fedora project leader, Red Hat never came to me and tried to influence the way that Fedora went, or tried to make us differentiate ourselves for commercial reasons at all. Um, Red Hat put very very big trust in me as the Fedora project leader in the, in the Fedora community, and uh, you know. 
gave us gave us money to, to do what we needed to do and basically said go out and do the best you can with, with the resources you have. But never once did they turn, did, did, did they come to me and say, Jared, you got to change Fedora to be like this or you know, to differentiate yourselves this way. It was never about that. It was always about go go run with the technology, do the best you can, which was very you know to, to be honest it was very refreshing. When I walked into the the, the the role as the Fedora project leader. I didn't know exactly what to expect. I wasn't a Red Hat employee at the time. I, you know, I, I, I had great hopes that they would, you know, let us run and do the best we could. But it was very refreshing from that side. I don't want to speak for for other corporations and, and you know what they do or don't don't do from a, from a distribution standpoint. But yes, many of the Linux distributions do have a, a, a corporate partner. I think some people read too much into that at times. Um, certainly, pe- people think, oh yeah, you know, yeah, Fedora is just the beta test for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And, you, know, you hear rumors like that. And, those sorts of things, but my experience hasn't been that. My my, my experience is that the, the, the corporate politics tends to take a back seat to you know, to what's what's best from a technology standpoint, at least within the limited consensus of the people in that particular distribution. But uh, yeah, it certainly adds. That's well, that's one element of the of the equation. But I don't think it's a, 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 as big of an element as, as some people might might assume. What's the state of uh, umbrella organizations over open source? I mean, is this an open source software foundation? Or maybe two knobs at a time. But anybody in here who, who deals with audio, if I came up to your mixer and turned about 50 knobs all at once, what would you do to me? <laughs> You'd scream or slap me or punch me? Or... Wouldn't make you too happy, would it? No. So we have to be careful as distributions about how many knobs we tweak all at the same time. Because people get into a habit and they say, I like my distribution and it's the way I'm used to it. And oh my goodness, this changed. And we have a new desktop over here. And oh my goodness, they moved this icon. And this icon's a different color. And what am I going to do? You know? And sometimes those changes are warranted. And sometimes those changes are changed for the sake of change. And so it's really hard sometimes to decide, is this really a change that, that's going to benefit people or is it going to hurt people? Just as one, one example, recent example in Fedora, we, we were one of the first Linux distributions and, and we were the first mainstream Linux distribution to switch to the GNOME 3 desktop. Was that painful? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> did, we, did we take a lot of heat for it? Yes. In the end, do I believe that it was the right thing to do? Probably. <laughs> no. No, it, it, it really was. It was painful and, and, you know, to be honest, GNOME 3 is a great desktop. I really like it. It wasn't fully baked. Um, it had some issues. They've, they've tried to clear some of those up with GNOME 3.2 and GNOME 3.4. But we have to take the long-term view that it's a work in progress. And sometimes you've got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. But the only way we're going to keep moving the ball down the field is to establish relationships with the upstream communities and trust that the upstream communities are going to do the right thing. Um, there's just no way practical to say, oh, we're going to stay on GNOME 2. Nobody's going to keep developing it. Nobody's putting bug fixes into it. Because the development has gone another direction. And ultimately, you either have to maintain it yourself or you pick back up with the upstream distribution and track them and, and do the best you can to build build relationships with them and trust that they're doing the right thing. But if it works, why fix it? Well, did it, did it work? I mean, yeah. we all got used to the way it worked. But honestly... Um, for me, now that I've used, you know, I've used GNOME 3 for about a year now, um, for me to go back to a, a GNOME 2 way of doing things feels really clunky, and it feels like, man, I'm back on Windows 95, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah, it works, and you know, Windows 95 works for some people too, but 
but there's times when we've got to kind of break down the paradigms that we're used to and, and be willing to move on to something that's, that's different. Um, in, in the grand scheme of things, do I like the fact that, it, that, that we have such radical changes? It's painful. It's hard. It's not easy to, it's not easy to accept. But I think you know, in the end, some, sometimes we do, we do need to make those, those radical leaps. I'd like to make a comment in favor of stability. Somebody suggested that um, the only reason we have upgrades to things like Windows is to introduce new and incompatible file systems so we don't have to repurchase software that works just fine. And one of the things that has always been a really excellent feature of the open source community has been stability. That uh, your software works. I have machines now. Uh, eight, ten years old, which are still trucking along and doing a great job, and they're not all that different from the new ones. Uh, I can maintain both they into react and so on. I get the feeling right now, particularly with things like uh, Unity and Windows 8, there is a feeling we have to make some radical changes and the concept of stability well, you know, there's always this dichotomy. There's, a, there's, a, you know, you could take take extremes to both sides. You could say, you know, stability on the, on this far extreme, and you can say, you know, kind of cutting edge new features on this extreme. And you got to find a find a balance somewhere in between. And different Linux distributions play to different, to, you know, to different strengths on that on that continuum. For example, Fedora is always going to be further to this side, you know, towards the new new features and less on stability, just because of its, you know. It's, it's, it's shelf life. We're cutting, it, we're cutting a new Fedora release every six months, and we're only pushing out updates for 13 months. If you, if you want a system that you're going to run for seven or eight years, I'm going to be the first to admit, Fedora may not be your best you know, answer for that. What I'm going to suggest is, uh, I heard one young lady who had done her PhD thesis using tech, mm-hmm. and years, years later, she needed a copy of it. She thought, ah, well, it probably won't work anymore. Let's do it try. And she was watching as a beautiful copy of the pieces came out of the printer. I have something like 5,000 word-perfect files oh, you poor man. that are practically impossible to open. And uh, <coughs> the thing is that uh, stability has always been one of the features that we have as one of our best marketing points. Why are we endangering? I'm not saying we uh, continue to have new things, but in the case to do an idea towards stability so that the only things which are part of uh, our heritage continue to work. I can open a book that was written in the 13th century and read. But I think, and well, I think I think there's I think there's there's two things to that. The first the first is one one of the nice things about open source is that source is open, and so we can continue to to try to do our best to maintain backwards compatibility. Um, you know, yeah, I, I bet if you went to Microsoft and asked them, hey, I want to fix this thing in Windows three one one, they wouldn't even know where to find the source code to to, to go back and, and and fix it. Or if they didn't know where the source code was, they wouldn't want to go. Go, go back and fix it. You know, the nice thing about open source software and having that source available is 
that if if people want that, they can they can go use the source code to help them help them solve that well, problem. Yeah, worst case, if you want it bad enough, you sit down and fix it yourself. Right. At the, on the second hand, the back going back to my analogy, there are Linux distributions that very, that are very much focused on hey, this is for the long term. We're going to support this particular piece of software for ten years in the case of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Um, so so there's there's extremes on both sides. But I, I don't think you can have stability and backwards compa- compatibility and the latest and greatest features all at the same time without making some compromises somewhere along the line. Here and then over there. I go back to the underlying technology that basically we are in a major shift in terms of the hardware platform that our software is running on. Having ported an application to the Android platform, it is a total game changer. So all of the operating systems vendors, whether they're proprietary or open source, are trying to adapt to this new technology. And ultimately, what they'd like to be able to do is to say one size fits all, that we've got this operating system and it will run on the older PCs or it will run on the newer smartphones and tablets. And guess what? That's not an easy thing to do. And so right now, we are in a huge state of flux in terms of the new code that's coming out because they're trying to adapt it to a brand new um, hardware architecture. And the thing is, is that if you don't use this stuff on tablets and uh, smartphones, what you're seeing is a huge change for no good reason whatsoever. So... I, I see all the forums where people are just saying, this is crazy, you know, PCs will be around forever. Yes, they will. Use the software you were using last year because that's, that was designed specifically for PCs. All the software this year is being designed for this new hardware, and oh, by the way, we're going to try and make it uh, run on the old PCs as well. But our target is this new mobile platform. So, you know, I think you're talking apples and oranges here. When you're talking about, you know, being able to use old uh, word processing formats and things, that's one issue. But what we're seeing today with Unity, GNOME 3, KDE 4, all of these things, they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this new hardware. That's, that's certainly part of it. I had a comment over here. Actually, I disagree, but I'll talk to you offline on that. <laughs> if I may introduce another metaphor. Sure. Uh, distributions, we talk about distributions and communities. The distribution is really a community of communities. Because there are different projects. There's KDE, there's GNOME, there's the GCC project, there's all kinds of projects, and they all move how they move. Right. There's no one person calling all the shots. The metaphor I'll introduce is the metaphor of the herd, or the pack. But I like herd better. It's like the new one. It's it's a herd of gazelles. (laughs) Projects can move independently, but they have to stay in the herd. The herd moves. There's no one calling the shots for the herd. It just moves. It happens and 
all the gazelles run off and the herd moves, except for that one gazelle that wasn't paying attention and the lion's by the lion. We're on this, we're riding this herd mm -hmm. as software users, as software developers. Um, the biggest, well first off I'm going to say that I love school. Um, I remember starting off with Debian, and somebody gave me, well no, I started off with Slack, but it's really fast then. Um, I started off with Debian, and trying to update at one point, and finding out that the updater had changed from X to Y, and I was no longer able to update. Um, so I do love stability. The reason that I see for wanting to be cutting edge is the same reason that I Years ago, I asked somebody, why is it that, say, Japan gets all of the coolest new, um, they get all of the new game systems, the new stuff, they get the new phones, why do they get it? And somebody explained to me, because American audiences, well, this is what they said. They said American audiences do not like new stuff that still has bugs in it. They're not willing to go through the rigmarole of porting back and, get, and finding out what the newest cleanest piece of software. They, they actually use Japan's like beta tester before they get to the European and the American markets. With Fedora, I don't see a polished project. I see something where you see the newest brand new stuff, but the only, the only metaphor that comes to my mind as a place where you can go and get the brand new tool that isn't quite done yet is something like QLabs out of a out of a James Bond film, where they've got something brand new, something exciting that no one else has ever seen, but it's not quite safe yet. <laughs> is and I love that it's I love that it's cutting edge. I love that it's, that it's brand new. But is there are there are there advent, is, is there an advantage to being able to show tools that aren't quite done yet that might break apart in a person's hands that, and, and leave them with, a, uh, with something that they, they, they can't do, use at that one point. Um, I want to end up, I want to ask a better question, but that's what I've got. So, so my answer to that is, it, it all comes down to usability. If the operating system doesn't let you do what it is you're trying to get done, whether that's write a program or open a word processing file or, you know, or whatever it is you do, then, 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 then that operating system isn't isn't useful. So, so usability is, is key there. And you know, we we try to walk a fine line in Fedora. We don't always do the, the best job we can, but um, we try to walk a fine line between being cutting edge and bleeding edge. You know, um, we want to we want to be enough on the cutting edge that that people are seeing the new features, maybe before they're fully baked, maybe before all the bugs have been worked out, but but still in a usable state. Um, and we've you know over the last you know, three or four years, we've tried particularly hard with our QA, um, you know, team and, and, and project within Fedora to make sure that when we release a particular version, and whether it's the alpha or the beta or the final release, that, that all our releases are, are based on, you know, on, on release criteria. We have a list that says it has to do this, this has to work, it has to do this, it has to, it has to do this. And, and over time, we, we refine that, that, that list of criteria. But that way, we're not just shipping out a, a distribution because, oh, there's the six-month mark. It's got to go out the door. But we, re, we really do try to focus on does, does the core functionality work? 
are there, you know, make sure there's no major flaws in the system. Yeah, with individual applications or, or individual you know, sub-projects, there's, there's going to be things that aren't fully polished, that, that have some rough edges, um, but we still want it to be usable. If it's not usable, then it doesn't do anybody any good. So it's, 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 it's walking that fine line. Um, it's not an easy, easy line to, uh, to walk. And if you've looked at, uh, for example, the Fedora release schedule, um, one of the things I got beat up a lot on was, you know, especially with our alphas and our betas, they tended to slip. Oh, we had a, a one-week slip in the alpha. Oh, we had a two-week slip in the beta. And I don't see those as failures. I see those as trying to make sure that the software is usable, that it's not so rough and so raw that it can't be, that it can't serve, serve a good purpose. So it, it, it's a balance. Does that answer your question? You Here in the view of sacrificing part of your market to be cutting edge. For example, it's very difficult for us to make a dramatic change in how we do something. I, He's 80 years old. It comes slower than it does to the rest of you. I have a friend who's 92, drives, does his own investing and everything out, but he's not caught up here yet. He's, and, and you're slowly just going to hack him off, and then you're going to hack this guy off, and then I'm going to be next. And well, and let, let, time, you guys will be hacked off, too. Let me say two things to that, to that effect. First of all, in Fedora, we, we very rarely talk about markets. In fact, I think this is the first time in the past two years I've really talked about a, a market because in Fedora, we're not, you know, our number one goal is not, you know, to be the, the, the most popular, our number one goal isn't, isn't to, you know, like to make money. We, like I said, we can't I'll, make money. I'll switch to users. We, we, we like users, don't get me wrong, and we, we try to actively count as best we can with the limited tools that we have to see how many people are using Fedora. We don't have any phone home mechanism or anything like that to count how many people are actually using it. We count downloads and we count the number of people that, that, that their systems check in for updates and try to extrapolate some rough numbers on that. But that's never been goal number one. Um, goal number one is to build a great community and use that community to help build great software. Um, and is, is number of users important? Yes, it, it is, but it's never been our number one goal. But at the same time, um, if, if it comes down to um, you know, being the, 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 the software distribution that, that puts the features in first and, and guarantees freedoms within the, in the project, we're going to err on that side rather than the number of users side because there are other Linux distributions that are mo more focused on users or longer-term support or less changes or slower rate of change. That just doesn't happen to be Fedora's forte. I would point you at a, a Fedora Enterprise Linux or a Debian or a, 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 you know, one of their derivatives for something that's slower, slower pace of change, less radical change, um, for that sort of thing, that's just never been Fedora's strong suit. That's not 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 our intended our, our intended focus. Just out of curiosity, I'll ask you a quick question. So, what are two examples like one of cutting edge changes that were incorporated? Um, like, what is sorry, which I guess cutting edge change? Um, I think the GNOME three thing was was a was a pretty radical departure from 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 you know from the GNOME two desktop. Um, I think in in Fedora. Um, 16 to 17, you know, 16 particularly, we moved to the System D initialization system. We moved away from the field System 5 um, initialization system, which is an initialization system. It's a pretty radical change. I mean, System 5 has been around how, how, forever. And, uh, and 
everybody's familiar, most everybody's familiar with System 5 and the way it works and just kind of takes it for granted that, okay, this is how, it, uh, this is how it's always worked, that's the way it should always work. Um, you know, I think it's great that, that Fedora was able to go out there and say, hey, let's try something different. You know, you know, there was Upstart that came out a few years ago, and it solved some of the problems. It, it had some problems in its own, and so System D was kind of the next step from that and say, hey, let's try to, let's try to take that one step further. And, and I love it. It's, it's, it's still got some, some minor things that I'm not perfectly happy about, but from, from, from taking this long-term view of where do we want to be five years from now, where do we want to be ten years from now, I think it's definitely one of those cutting-edge features that's, that's in the right direction. It was first in Fedora, and other distributions are slowly coming along and saying, yeah, yeah, we see the light now. So. Yeah, but you took a lot of pushback from other distributions. Oh yes, when we you did, did and, and we knew we knew that so, we would, and, and so yeah, we don't always get case, it right. You guys started the argument. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we do, and uh, we have. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, we have people within the Fedora community who are really good at starting those sort of, those types of arguments. <laughs> on that. And and so you know, you, you got to walk. You got to walk this fine line. For me personally, the way I view it is, when you're arguing about what's right from a technology standpoint. That, that, that argument is perfectly valid and, and needs to happen and is a healthy thing to have happen. When it goes beyond that and starts arguing about who's right instead of what's right, that's the point in my mind where I said, ah, something's wrong here. You know, when, it, when it's Fedora versus Ubuntu versus this technical decision versus this other technical decision, that's where things start clicking in my head and this little red flag goes up and I said, ah, that's, the, that's when the conversation has changed. So, so, so you, you went back to, you know, what, what's my ultimate vision? My ultimate vision is that there's lots of healthy debate about the, the technical pieces of the distribution and of what, what can we change and what shouldn't we change, how should we change it and when should we change it. I think those are all very healthy and, 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 and laudable things. It's really, though, listening to the tone of the conversation. It's, oops, it's listening to are we talking about what's right or are we talking about who's right um, it's when the argument moves past what are we going to do to make things better and just arguing for the sake of arguing. That, 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 that's you know, ultimately what, the, what the, at least my own vision is about, is not only having the conversations, but listening to ourselves in a feedback loop and, and what are we really arguing about? What are we really fighting about? Is that really the most important thing at this point? Um, so to kind of end, end the, the, kind of the canned presentation tonight, let me just point out the why. Why is it worth it swimming upstream? Why is it worth putting all this effort in it? Why do we reach out to upstream communities to try to build those, those bridges of communication to work more closely with them? Well, it's to try to influence. It's to try to influence because we all live downstream. We want to we wanna make the world a better place for all of us. And so, yes, you know, we have arguments. We have problems. You know, we have things that we could do better to outreach. Um, whether it's outreaching to governments or outreaching to, to, to end users or outreaching to you know, different software communities. The end goal, though, I think we all share the same end goal. And that's what we all live downstream. We want you know, open source to thrive. We want open source to be commonplace. We want basic freedoms guaranteed for ourselves and for our software and for the devices that we have. And so that's, that's why we do what we do, and that's why it's important to swim upstream. Anyway, that's the end of the canned presentations. I'm open for, for comments, questions, complaints, <coughs> rotten tomatoes. Jared, can you talk a little bit about the Fedora remix and what the objective is there, what the goal is there? Sure. So from the beginning, Fedora has, has always been about flexibility. Um, 
giving people the freedoms to do what they want to do with the software. And one of those freedoms is to be able to take it and change it and remix it and spin it a different way and, and, and come up with your own derivative. Um, for legal and trademark purposes, um, we don't want people to go and take what's in Fedora and mix it with third-party software that's not licensed appropriately and still call that Fedora. For, for trademark reasons, that's, that's, that's a bad idea. So we came up with a secondary mark called the Fedora Remix, which is basically saying, hey, this is a mixture of Fedora software with some other stuff, but it's not the, the, exactly the same as what you get on, you know, on the Fedora distribution. But that's okay. We, we, we highly encourage people to go out and, and take Fedora and remix it and, 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 and try things a little different way. Um, in fact, we, we provide all the tools. We, we provide all the recipe. Here, here's how we build the distribution so you can go build your own remix yourself. I think that's a very healthy thing and a very positive thing. Um, and even even what our, our official what we call spins of Fedora, you know, the KDE spin and the LXDE spin and the electronics lab spin and the audio spin and the computer security spin and heaven knows what the robotics spin did I say? You know, we have these other kind of focus groups that focus on one particular area and put together a you know their own spin of Fedora. I think those are a very healthy thing to do because as a distribution, you can't make all the people happy all the time. But if there's a, a group of three or four people that want to get get together and say, we're going to focus on electronics, or we're going to focus on robotics, or we're going to focus on computer security, and we're going to make our own little subset of Fedora over here to focus on those areas, I think that's a very, very helpful thing. So that was unrelated to the, the Raspberry... Uh, oh, the Raspberry Pi stuff? Pi stuff. So the Raspberry Pi is a really interesting thing. So get me off on a tangent here, but I, I'm going to talk anyway. Um, so everybody familiar with the Raspberry Pi? Yes. It's a $25 computer about the size of a credit card, about uh, three quarters of an inch thick. Um, I've got a picture of it on my Flickr account if you want to look at it. Um, I've actually held one in my hands, which is kind of cool. Um, the, when when the, the Raspberry Pi organization started um, you know, getting serious about building their boards and started having prototypes and stuff made, they started going out and asking you know, Linux distributions, hey, do you want to build a version of your, your distribution that works on our particular platform? There were certain distributions to, to remain unnamed who said, no, we don't want to support that kind of story. Um, other distributions such as Fedora that picked up and ran with it and said, yeah, we can do that. We, you know, we have support for the ARM processor that you're using, and, and it'll take us a little work to get all the other packages exactly the way you want them, but yeah, we'll do that. Um, the exact reason why it was a remix and not just a, a, a Fedora distribution is because for the Raspberry Pi in particular, there's one piece of code for the system on the chip that is not open source yet. And uh, until that, that one piece, it, it's the piece that talks to the, the, the graphics chip and gets the graphics chip talking to the, to the CPU. And until that piece is open sourced, you can't really run a software without that piece of software, and it's not open source, so we can't include it in Fedora. So that's why we made that a, a Fedora remix rather than just a, a plain vanilla distribution of Fedora. We're hoping to be able to work with the, with the hardware vendor and, and get them to hopefully keep our fingers crossed, you know how hard, hardware vendors can be. At some time in the future, make that all open source, and at that time, we would hope to have a Fedora distribution specifically for the Raspberry Pi. In the meantime, the Raspberry Pi remix is... All but one package is Fedora, and all, all but one package is open source, and it's just that one that one loader piece of software that, that, that's a binary. So. Do you have any knowledge as to why that Fedora Linux for the rest of the Simply for memory memory constraints on the physical device and size of the packages needed on the, 
you know, on, on the, you know, LXD is very lightweight, takes up less memory, and it takes the, the packet, the whole package set takes up a lot less space on the, on the SD card. And I know that full-fledged um, run like things like BeagleBoard. Uh-huh. I've got a BeagleBoard in, 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 sitting on my desk right now. Um, GNOME will at least theoretically run just fine on, you know, on the, on the Raspberry Pi. Um, again, because it's a because it's a, a, a Fedora-based remix, you could certainly remix your own and, and, and put GNOME on there. But for for the sake of trying to get this out in a hurry and simplicity and, and low memory requirements, um, Chris Tyler from, from Seneca College up in Toronto, who put the remix together, um, chose to go with LXDE. Um, if you're interested in that sort of thing, the, the Fedora Arm Group um, has a weekly meeting. They've got an IRC channel. They've got a mailing list where they're actively working on that um, and. You know, Making improvements to to put our support for ARM all the time. One, one point, one thing that I have discovered is that the GCC for ARM yes is absolutely terrible. You're absolutely right, and we're working on that um, right now. We're working on Fedora 17 for for ARM. And so we've just got GCC 4.6 working on ARM and working well on ARM, and it actually does a better job than some. Yes. It does, it does a, a heck of a lot better job than some of the earlier versions of GCC on ARM did for many companies. It's still not perfect, but it's, it's a step in the right direction. It almost seems like um, the uh, RTL to assembler layer for GCC doesn't understand that they have a real... Real extra set of registers and yeah. like more, more registers than you might find on an x86 processor? What a concept, you know? Yeah. They are doing everything in R1, R2, and R3. And what are these twenty other registers doing? Oh, they're sitting empty. We don't 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 worry about those. <laughs> Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Yeah, we could we could go on and on about technical details like that. And we'll probably catch, catch catch me after the meeting and I'll, I'll tell you all kinds of horror stories. But yep. Are we privy to discussions that led Red Hat to move from Zen to another? Uh, uh, virtual machine. So, this this is an this is an example of, of one place where um, kind of upstream development was done. It got pulled into Fedora. Fedora tried it for several cycles um, to see whether it was ready or not for kind of the enterprise world. Um, Red Hat kind of took and ran with with with, with Zen because it, it had proved itself in in Fedora. At the same time, when KVM came out, it was pretty obviously pretty quick that that. It had some advantages to Zen at the time, especially the way the Zen hypervisor was was being developed and the pace at which it was developed, and, and, and trying to get that rolled into, into you know, upstream kernels. Um, and so it was really a, a matter of you know Red Hat kind of placing a technology bet out there and saying, "Well, it worked well in Fedora. Let's run with it." And then KVM came along and said, "Okay, that runs a little better in Fedora." So so we'll uh, kind of shift gears there. Um, yeah, that that that's that's the nuts and bolts of it. I could go into more specifics, but that's the that's the nuts and the bolts of it. Is when it, when it came down to it, you know, Zen Zen's pretty good hypervisor, but but because of the way it wasn't being developed as as quickly and in in lockstep with the Linux kernel, it became harder and harder and harder over time to try to port that to the to the kernel until you know until just recently when they made some some really major efforts to get that back closer to upstream. Thank you. Oh, question over here. Fedora is the forefront in flexibility. Is there any sort of effort to try to help, aside from, of course, Red Hat, is there any uh, effort to take what has been learned in Fedora and 
move it into other packages. Okay, I have it working out of Fedora. How do I move it to my more stable package? That's something that the packages are up to. It's up to them. Do they have to come learn at Fedora and then move themselves, or is there? No, there's a couple of things we do in Fedora to try to try to help that out. One one thing in particular is is we have a, a kind of a sub project in Fedora called Apple Enterprise Packages for Enterprise. Or, Extra packages for enterprise Linux, excuse me, EPEL, and that's a, a set of packages that, that use the Fedora packaging scheme, the, you know, use the Fedora packaging guidelines, um, the, the Fedora build system, um, but they're packages designed specifically to be extra packages for a Red Hat enterprise Linux or a derivative of that, like CentOS or uh, Scientific Linux or something like that. Um, and so, so that's one one effort where we say, here, here's things we've done in Fedora that, that work well in Fedora. Lessons that we've learned, packages that are available in Fedora that may not be available in these in these other, you know, kind of longer term, slower slower moving um, distributions, and, and and help help out in that direction. That's 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 the you know, probably the, the the major thing that comes to mind. Um, there are other things, um, things from kind of an infrastructure standpoint, from a how how we get the distribution built kind of standpoint. We always try to be very transparent and open about the way that we do that and the lessons that we learn as we build our distribution. So that other distributions can follow along. You know, our build system is open. Our, you know, all our, all our, you know, sysadmin tools, everything we, you know, all the tools we use in Fedora. You know, from our build system to our infrastructure to our web servers to our databases, they're all, all open. All, all that's available. Um, you know, if, if you're into Puppet for systems management, all our Puppet recipes are open source. All, all that we try to be as open and transparent as, as we can, so that you know, if people want to follow along and learn through the lessons we've learned, it's all out there and available. That's, that's you know. We don't have a secret sauce on this is how we put the distribution together or these are the tools we use to, to put the distribution together. All right, I put everybody to sleep, it looks like. So. Thank you. Again, thanks, thanks again for inviting me. I'm glad to, glad to come out. If you have other questions, I'll stick around for a little while and then help answer some questions. And... Uh, like I said, so I'll try to get back up here uh, next month or, or sometime in the next in the near future. We'll do a, a presentation on voice over IP or technical. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever consider recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, Today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.